We're going to be in Acts chapter 13 uh, and 14. Uh, before I get to God's word, though, uh, just a couple things. One, is that Tony Carter in my church? Hey, man, I actually owe you an email. I got your email from Jim Whittle this week. Uh, Tony taught at a conference I was at this, this past fall. Um, actually, you led the whole thing, the Just, the just Gospel Conference. Um, you got kids coming to West Georgia, right, man? There we go. They're all right. Go Wolves. Go Wolves. <laughs> all right, cool. Well, um, hey, we want to be a sending church. We talked about that last week. Um, uh, unfortunately, the Lord doesn't ask me who he's going to send. I wish he would. Uh, I get to uh, let you know that uh, next week will be Kristen Coda's last week leading worship for us as God is calling them to Athens, um, which is a pagan place, right? Um, um, as, U- as a University of Florida fan, that is, that is the ends of the earth. Um, yeah. Uh, so next week, we'll be praying for them. They're going to be closer to family. They've taken a job in the school system translating, um, uh, doing sign language translating there, and will be leading worship um, at a multicultural church, which I'm excited about. Um, they're in downtown Athens, and so um, that'll be awesome. But we'll pray for them and send them out. Uh, believe also with Carmen Aranda, who's going to go uh, work with a church plant in Philadelphia. Um, and so we're excited about sending, um, even as... I'll probably cry next week. Acts chapter 13. This is probably the longest scripture passage I have ever read leading up to a sermon. We're going to read in chapter 13 and 14. Bear with me. I'm not going to read the whole things, but most of it. We're going to read in verses 13 through 52 of chapter 13, and then verses 8 through 23 of chapter 14 as we're looking at missions again. Hear God's word. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went to the, into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of the people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness, which is such a great description. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them uh, their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And we had removed him. He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing the course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who you fear God, 
To us has been sent the message of his salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the Holy One and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spread throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with the joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now I'll drop down to chapter 14, verse 8, and I'll read through verse 23. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the city and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature, like you, and we bring you good news that you should turn away from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons." 
satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. It sends the reading of God's holy, infallible and errant word. May the grass wither but the flower fade, but the word of our God. May it stand forever. All right, Acts chapter 13 and 14, as we learned last week, is in some ways we could call it the first missions trip of the church. And we began last week just looking at two weeks at this idea of missions, this term missions, which has been a prominent term in the evangelical church. That We talk about missions, we have missions conferences, and we send people on missions trips and what we studied last week was we looked first at really just those first four verses of chapter 13 and the identity and the characteristics of ascending church. Ascending church, a church that sacrifices, that is built up, not to hoard, but to send out their best and their brightest in order to sacrifice for the kingdom of God, for the glory of God's name. So that was the first aspect of what we looked at in regards to missions, that we need sending churches. And we're pleading for the Lord Jesus that we would be such a church, such a church that is willing to sacrifice, that is, looks like the church in Antioch in all of its beauty and its array and its worship. The second thing, though, we're going to look at is what we want to see this morning, and that is to shape our vision for missions. They shape our vision of what missions ought to be and what it ought to look like as we send out and send pastors, missionaries, gospel proclaimers into the world. And so this morning, while there's a lot we could get into, obviously over the two chapters, I want to hone our look at this text this morning as simply the way Luke shapes our vision and our expectations for missions. And he does so by displaying three things to us. The first is this. Luke communicates the vision, expectations for missions by displaying for us the message of missions. The message of missions. The foundation of every missions movement of the church must be what? The proclamation of the gospel. The proclamation of the good news. The sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 14, verse 7, he says, And there they continued to preach the gospel. In Acts chapter 13, what does he proclaim to a primarily Jewish audience? He goes through all the details, the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. And wherever the apostles went, they preached the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, there's two characteristics that I want to see this morning in regards to Paul's message, his gospel proclamation that I want us to see within this. I gave you three, but I'm just going to give you in your outline, but you're actually going to get two this morning. Two characteristics of this gospel message. The first is, is the message was God-centered. God-centered. You want to see simply how central God is to the story of the Bible, just read Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 13. 30 different times in Acts chapter 13, God is mentioned as the primary actor and mover. 
Paul goes through all over Israelite history from Egypt to the promised land to the giving of the judges and the provision of kings and saying that God is the one who provided those, those men. God is the one who saved them out of Egypt. God is the one who brought them into the promised land. And then it also points out that God is over the work of Jesus. He promises that Jesus will come. God is the sender of the message of the gospel. God is the one who rules over those even who put Jesus to death. And God is the one who raises Jesus from the dead. And that God is the one who calls us to faith in Jesus, who calls us to repentance, and who gives us righteousness in heaven and forgiveness of sins. God is the primary actor and mover in the Bible, and he is the primary actor and mover in the gospel. And then chapter 14, we see the same thing followed up. In verse 3, it says they speak boldly for the Lord, and they talk about um, when they're speaking to the pagans in chapter 14, these Gentiles, they speak of how God is the one who created the heavens and the earth. That any gospel message that we proclaim and any missionary that goes out, whether it be counterculturally in our own country or across the seas or to your neighbor who is just like you, that you preach and proclaim a gospel that is God-centered, that is God-exalting. He is the center of all things. And any church and any gospel that gets this, that loses this and becomes overly man-centric is going to lose the gospel, is going to lose the power for mission. So first we see Paul is God-centered in his gospel message. But second, while we say that God has got to be preeminent and prominent and exalted in our gospel message, what I also want to point out to you is that Paul's gospel message is also culturally directed. It's culturally directed. We have two sermons here by Paul, one in chapter 13 and the second in chapter 14. In Acts 13, he preaches to Jewish proselytes or to Jews, people who know the law, who are already trying to be made right with God through the law, through the law of Moses. In fact, he, he is talking to them in that kind of language, that you have sought to obtain righteousness under the law of Moses, he tells them. But then in Acts chapter 14, he's speaking to an entirely different group. He's in Lystra and Derby, and here he heals a man, and then what happens? They begin to worship him. And in Acts chapter 14, he's not preaching to a group of, of Jews who have an understanding of the law of Moses, but to general pagans and irreligious people. And what we see is that his sermon to one group is different from his sermon to the other group. The gospel doesn't change. The good news of Jesus Christ doesn't change. But he does direct how that gospel is applied in different ways. To the Jews, he speaks of their sin and of their idol of law-keeping, of their self-righteousness based on the law and their need to have a Savior who assuages their guilt before God. But to the pagans, to a people who worship many gods, who anything and everything, there's a god of the sun and the god of the harvest and the god of the you know, finances and the, all these various gods, they worship all these various gods. And he is saying, listen, what you need is not all these many gods, you need a better god. You need a better God, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who provides for you even when you reject him. And in fact, that's actually the story of what's going on, the context. You notice that when they heal this man, there's this hubbub, and the people get all excited about Paul and Barnabas, and they begin to worship them as if they are Zeus and Hermes. Now, Zeus and Hermes, there's a story as it relates to this city in which uh, it's a, an old fable or a myth that they had apparently come to believe, was that Zeus and Hermes had disguised themselves and had come to this town at one point and were, were, were looking and seeking help, and they went to a thousand homes seeking help and care. And none would provide it for them. 
Until finally, one old couple who had hardly any resources, any money provided for them and, and brought them in. And so what they did is they, in order to save this couple, they said, we are going to destroy this city. And they dragged that couple. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Maybe sometime in Genesis. They dragged that couple out of the city, out into the mountaintop where they looked down, and then they released a flood to destroy the city and destroy the families and those thousand homes. This is a part of their religious belief. And so when they see Paul and Barnabas come and do miraculous works, they go, you know what? We don't want to get the gods angry at us again. Whether that story is true or not, we want, to be pleased, we want them to be pleased with us. Because if they're pleased with us, life's going to go well. But if they're angry with us, ain't nothing good's going to happen. And so when they come out, they go, okay, these guys are doing some pretty cool works. Let's worship to them. Let's sacrifice to them. Let's serve them. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. You need a better God than Zeus and Hermes. You need a better God than us, than what we can provide. And Paul actually, he hones his gospel message saying, listen, that there is a God who created the heavens and the earth, who provides um, rain for the just and the unjust, and that you, these gods, Zeus and Hermes, that when you rejected them, they flooded and destroyed you. But then here's my gospel. The gospel that I proclaim is that God provides for the just and the unjust. And when he sent his son, what did the world do? They rejected him. But through that rejection, he brings forgiveness of sins. Paul doesn't change the gospel, but he does adapt how he appropriates the gospel on the culture and the person to which, on the culture or the person to whom he is speaking. I was talking this week with um, one of our Vision Pathway students who was going to had an appointment the next day at three o'clock to share the gospel with her mother or her Muslim stepfather. This is the exact conversation we had. And she was going, here's, here's my, my plan. She had kind of the classic kind of four spiritual laws plan. I talk, we talked about what does it look like to appropriate these truths in the Bible to the gospel of, to the beliefs and the system and the worldview and the longings of a Muslim man. So we need to listen. If we're going to be good gospel proclaimers, one, we must stand firm to the fact that we want to be God-centered, that he is glorious and he's who we proclaim, but we must also be willing to listen. We must be willing to listen. So, so much of the problem of the fundamentalist evangelical world is that we have shut off the world, and we have, our, our response has been to the brokenness of the world is, <laughs> like the illustration last week, they have no shoes. These gross people with no shoes. Look how disgusting they are. And instead, we have, instead of listening and saying, they are crying out for help and engaging the gospel in the places where people are broken and the systems that are broken in this world. Instead, we've just said, no, no, no. We're just going to hold ourselves off from you. There's a great illustration of this that happened in the early 2000s. You guys remember Britney Spears. I'm not, is she still around? Britney's popping around, right? I mean, right? Britney had um, disturbing songs if you had a teenage daughter. Hit me, baby, one more time, and you're going... Does that mean what I think it means and a 16-year-old is singing it? That doesn't sound good. She went on to fame and fortune, right? But a number of years later, uh, she was in the mid-2000s. Her life had unraveled. She had eaten from the buffet of all the promises that this world has to offer. The sexuality, the longings that she would have, that all of her desires would be met in a man, in fame, in fortune. And in the, the mid-2000s, what was happening to Britney Spears? She became a national mockery that we would watch on the news every night and laugh at. 
And around that time, a man named Bebo Norman wrote a song. He found a way to apply the gospel to her. He sang of all the lies that she had been fed. And then he would weep and apologize to her for all those lies. That we fed you these lies and then we laughed as you ate them and died. In fact, his song became, became so popular and so well-known in so many, some circles that he actually got a call from Brittany's mother who called to thank him for his compassion and his goodness towards her daughter. So that's the kind of gospel application that instead of saying, oh, look at that disgusting woman dressed like a floozy, but we listen to the cries of a young woman who's saying, I am eating everything I can from the buffet of this world, and it is killing me, and we should weep and apply the gospel right there to the deepest longings of the human heart. So the first thing I want you to see, a missions movement, the missions movement, the vision that we must have is a, is a gospel-proclaiming movement that makes God exalted, that puts him at the center, but then also communicates the beauty of who God is and the beauty of that gospel to the longings of the human hearts in each culture. But I also want you to see that the mission moves, the missions moves beyond simply evangelism. It is never less than evangelism. It starts with the gospel, but missions cannot be done. It cannot be done without missions, but without evangelism, but it moves beyond it into a pattern. There's a pattern that the missions movement of the New Testament follows. So that's the second thing I want you to see. Luke shapes our vision and expectations for mission by displaying the pattern of missions. I want to see there's a couple steps that happens. First, in every place, as we've already seen, is there's a preaching of the gospel. But then it moves beyond that. Verse 21 to 23 of chapter 14, it says this. But when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And in verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Here's the steps, or the patterns, the steps that we see in missions in the New Testament. First, it is the preaching of the gospel. Second, it is the building of disciples. Literally, it says in verse 22 that they strengthen and encourage them. The Greek verbs for strengthening and encouraging are technical terms for establishing and fortifying. It means they simply wouldn't go and preach and proclaim the gospel, and they would say, yes, you come to know Jesus, you got your hell insurance, we can check it off the list. But then what they would do, they would root them in the gospel. They were building up disciples in churches. And the Great Commission calls us to make disciples, not just baptizing them, but then what? Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. To appropriate the gospel in all areas of life. Discipleship is not done when someone has heard and believed the gospel. And this is Paul's and Barnabas' view as well. That they preach the gospel, but then they stick around to establish and strengthen the faith of the believers. It moves beyond simply evangelism. But then the third step is this. So preaching the gospel, then building disciples, and then third, what do they do? They equip leaders to oversee those disciples. Verse 23, they appoint elders. They appoint elders to oversee, to continue the teaching and the training and the care of the flock. They establish overseers, a structure of discipleship, a structure of leadership that would be over these disciples. We call these structures the institutional church. And that is what they would establish, and then what would they do? They would hit repeat. So they preach, they build, they equip, 
repeats, verse 23, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You see, just as the missionaries, as we saw last week, just as Paul and Barnabas were sent out and they were commissioned by the church in Antioch to go out with the gospel of Jesus Christ, what do Paul and Barnabas do to these churches? They commission them in the Lord to carry on the mission of the gospel where God has called them to serve and to work. You see, the pattern, the pattern even functions as a geographical pattern as well. Paul would, and Barnabas would tend to go to larger cities, and they would preach and proclaim the gospel. They would establish a church there, and then it was that church's job to reach out and reach all sectors of that culture and that place and to reach out into the surrounding areas. They were commissioning them to be, as we talked about last week, as part of their identity to be a sent ones and sending ones as a church. Charles Spurgeon says this about the church. He says this, the church, Christian church was designated from the first to be aggressive. It was not intended to remain stationary at any period, but to advance onward until its boundaries became commensurate with those of the world. It was to spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. It was not intended to radiate from a central point only, but to form numerous centers from which its influence might spread to the surrounding parts. That's what Paul does. Creating kingdom centers out of which the gospel can radiate to every place. Christ plays in 10,000 places. The gospel goes out to 10,000 places, and that is the church's job. So the steps and the pattern of the mission is preach, build, equip, repeat. Over and over and over again. And there is a desired result, though. A temporal desired result. Now, John Piper has made it very famous, right? The point of missions is worship, right? And that is, and we'll get to that, the glory of Jesus Christ. That is the eternal and the temporal goal of missions. But there is a penultimate goal, a temporal goal, which is to establish and plant churches. That those steps, that that pattern that of preaching, building, equipping, repeating is to establish churches in all areas of the world. This is what they do. John Stott actually calls this, he describes this as Paul's missionary policy. He says that Paul didn't leave behind him missions agencies, he left behind him churches. Nothing can disguise or alter that fact. And this is the pattern that we see. That church planting is the plan in the New Testament. That the Great Commission is actually a commission to plant. If you baptize someone, you're baptizing them into what? A church, the visible church. God does not call us to plant rogue disciples, but disciples who commune with together in a body of believers. And this family, this body is known as the church. This is what God has called us to do. And this isn't to say that there shouldn't, at every step of those ways, there are those who are called to go out and make disciples. And there are those who are called to equip leaders. Listen, one of the greatest ways the church in America can be involved in, the, in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth is one, through going to unreached people groups, but primarily it's probably sending our resources and our best trained theologians to go train pastors who already know their cultural context to teach them how to proclaim the gospel. It's what Jim Whittle does with Equipping Leaders International. This is the good ROI for missions. This is what John and Suzanne Collins' son, who now works with an organization up in Near, um, in, in Bethlehem, near Bethlehem in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And what God has called us to do to equip, but in every one of these, if the only goal is to do make disciples and see people saved, that it's not that that's bad, but it's not holistic. It's not seeing the full vision. 
What God desires are kingdom outposts of perpetual proclamation from which the gospel can be disseminated to the ends of the earth. Paul and Barnabas, they can't do it all themselves. They're there proclaiming the gospel and then they leave. But they leave behind them the perpetual presence of churches. And in fact, this is what we see. In the the 10 years between AD 47 and AD 57, we see that Paul has established churches all over the empire in Galatia, Macedonia, and Achaia, and Asia. In various continents around the world, the gospel is established. Don McGavern highlights this. He was the dean of the World Missions Faculty at Fuller Theological Seminary. He said this, that the essential task in a world where three-fourths of all men and women have yet to believe in Jesus Christ as God and Savior is that of planting new churches. The goal is the establishment of a church committed of committed Christians in every community, every neighborhood, every class, and condition of people where everyone can hear and see demonstrated the gospel in his own tongue and has a reasonable opportunity to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. So therefore, the best way to make disciples of all tribes, tongues, and peoples is to go plant churches. Preaching, building, equipping, repeating the results and what this is what the church does. This is kind of like the church's organic ecosystem. Just as Adam was supposed to take the garden and expand it to the ends of the earth, so the church is supposed to take churches and expand it to the end of the earth so that we may bring beauty and redemption in all places. That's the vision. That's the pattern. So we see the message. We see the pattern. Lastly, I want to shape our vision of what missions should be and what it will be by talking about the realities of missions. The realities of missions. I want to look at this from two directions. The first is this, is the work of missions is hard. If we are going to be a church that's going to be involved in this, if you're going to be one who is a sent one and sent out, either here in Carrollton or around the world, it is going to be hard. Look at what Paul and Barnabas endure, just to kind of an overview of what, they, what happened. They had misunderstandings which you would have, that you must be willing to humble yourself to go into other cultures, that there's going to be cultural barriers and linguistic barriers. Paul and Barnabas, it says a part of the issue why people were worshiping them is because they didn't speak the language. Most people's, most places they went, they spoke Greek, not in this particular city. They spoke Lyconian, whatever that is. We don't know what Lyconian is, but there's going to be misunderstandings. There's going to be hard work to learn the languages so you can share the gospel both linguistically and culturally. They had internal strife, didn't they? This is true for missionaries on the field now. What do we see in, in, in verse 13? It's easy to run over, because, but Paul brings it back later on before the second missionary journey. In verse 13, now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them, that's John Mark, and returned to Jerusalem. Now later on, this, this apparently hacks Paul off. Because later on, when he and Barnabas are about to head out again, and Barnabas is like, let's take John Mark again, Paul goes, you know what? He's a sissy. He's a little rich boy, and I don't want to bring him. And so you can take him. I'm going to do my thing. And so they split up. Now, God in his goodness, through, through Barnabas, preserves John Mark. But there is inward internal strife into the mission's going forward. So we see misunderstandings, internal strife, but even more than that, we have external opposition. 
It's all over the place, right? Verse 8 of chapter 13, Elymas the magician specifically says he opposed them. There's the Jewish persecution. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Chapter 14, verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Verse 5 and 6, when an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. And then in verse 19, when the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. They chased him all over the Mediterranean, throwing rocks, preaching falsely, accusing him. Paul is just beaten up everywhere, and this is just the beginning. The great Dr. J.H. Jowett, who was a famous preacher and evangelist in England in the early 20th century, said this about Paul's mission. He said he was out walking in the snow, and he followed a track of blood from a bleeding hair. He said it was emblematic of Paul throughout the Mediterranean, that he left a trail of blood and persecution Listen, brothers and sisters, the book of Acts and the rest of the whole New Testament, beloved, does not promise us a pretty picture of what missions will be like. It will be bloody. And sometimes from friends. There will be misunderstandings. There will be opposition of all the sorts. You've heard of the term, watching the sausage get made? Watch churches get made. It's ugly, it's messy, and at some point you end up in a meat grinder. That is what missions is like. It is tough. It is painful. And in fact, the description that God, that Jesus gives us in the gospel is that if you want to see the gospel grow, if you want to see churches planted and the gospel go forth, you have to die. You have to be willing to be misunderstood. You have to be willing to face opposition. You have to be willing to deal with strife and have the maturity to say the gospel's bigger. The gospel's big enough. It's big enough. So listen, we're sending people out next week. They didn't ask my permission. I don't like it. But man, it'd be great if we were even more, more intentional about sending people out. Sending people out from our midst. This is part of the reason why we love Vision Pathways. Listen, I love having 23, 24-year-olds. It gives life and energy to our church. But if we keep them all here, we are not doing our job. We must send out. What's willing to say, listen, we want to send our best this is not just about money. Oh, it's about money, but it's about people as well. So it's hard. It will take death for some of us individually. For some of you that get sent, it's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. But, but, the other reality of missions is this, is while the work itself is hard and painful, the fruit of missions is sweet. Verse 47, 48 functions as a, as a junction in these two chapters where Luke reminds us of the motivating force of what's going on in Paul and Barnabas. Pick it up in verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they'd what? They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. 
See the pattern of missional thought that drives both sending churches to send and church planters, aka missionaries, to go is what? This vision that we would see the gospel, the salvation of Jesus go to where? The ends of the earth. And then when the salvation reaches the end of the earth and to all peoples and all ethne, what do the nations do, it says? It says that the Gentiles here, they rejoice. They rejoice. And when the nations rejoice, what happens? Who gets glory? God does. And this has always, always been God's missional vision for his people. Psalm 67 says this, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. You, re- you recognize that? Remember last week, we benedict and then we commission. We give you the blessings of the gospel and then we send you out. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Selah, whatever that means. That your way may be known on earth. You're saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. So we have the gospel going forth. We have rejoicing in the nations. We have God getting glory. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let us, let all the ends of the earth fear him. It's God's cosmic vision for salvation. It is not me and my children. It is not me and my church. It is not me and my city. It is for the nations. And the motivating force that happens when missions happens is when Christians come to see and enjoy the glory of God. And then what happens at the very end? We begin with the glory of God. And what happens at the end? God gets glory again. We saw last week that what compels a church to send and to go out is a worship of God, and what comes back to at the very end is God gets glory. And the beautiful truth of the gospel is that these promises that the salvation would go to the ends of the earth and that all peoples would rejoice and that God would get glory is that is a guarantee. And that is the guarantee that you need when it gets hard when there is strife, when there's misunderstandings, when there's oppression, that when that oppression hits as you try to proclaim the gospel and plant churches in tough soil, you need this promise. Because Acts begins with what? An ascended Lord who has defeated death in the resurrection and now reigns and rules and the guarantee that salvations go to the ends of the earth, that all peoples are going to rejoice and that God is going to get the glory is because Christ has won the victory. That's the message of Acts. So King's Chapel, we're in the dog days of summer. I'm not even sure what that means. I think it means you get bored. It's hot and the days are long. So what I would say is, beloved, do not go weary in doing good. Listen, we've added missional activities to our church, but let's not go tired. You will get tired. It will mean late nights. It will mean your babies will go to bed late. It will mean you will be tired of being misunderstood. It will, be, it will mean you will, you will pursue people that you have strife with because you're like, the mission is too important for us to have being bittered against one another. It means you'll, you'll engage with the broken and lost places of this city and this world. It will be hard. But do not grow weary in doing good. The battle has won one, and the king reigns and rules. At the end of it all, soli deo gloria, right? Let's pray.
God, as we, we, we talked about last week, I can swap balloons in the air. Pray more. Show your faith more. Give more. But Lord, what we need to see is a beautiful vision of you. The glory of God who deserves worship. The king who reigns over all of eternity. And so gracious God, as I asked last week, I pray that you give us that same vision. A vision that would compel us out would compel us to live into our identity as a sent ones who have been sent out by our sending God. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, would you do that in our midst? That we would gaze upon your beauty, that we would seek your glory. Lord, lift our eyes up now, even as we cry out to you in worship, and then send us out in the name of Jesus. Amen.